Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. Gain new knowledge for a fresh new start. They never will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone, this is Fran Lewis This is MJ Network MJ after my sister, Marsha Joyce And this is going to be so cool Author Jeff Markowitz is here And we're going to talk about his book, Hit or Miss and this book really has high marks, and if you haven't read it, what are you waiting for? So good morning, and welcome to MJ Network. Good morning, Fran. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Me too. <laughs> this is like these things, these interviews are the highlights of my day, trust me. It's fun. So this is an interesting title. So why did you choose a time period that everybody, you know, pretty much anyone knows about? We hope they do. The time period of the Vietnam War. Why did you choose that particular time? Well, it's interesting because one of the things that surprises me is how many people really don't know about that period. Um, and, and I kind of take it for granted because I grew up during that era, so I don't really think of it as history. I mean, I think of it as, as part of my life. But mm. but I'm actually very surprised by the number of readers who have been interested because they didn't know anything about the period. Um, for me, one of the things that, that really influenced the decision um, came about as a result of the 2016 presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. And I started to, to, to be concerned about things that had been important many years ago that sort of had, had dropped off the, the front burner, if you will, issues like protecting the right to free speech and assembly and what the role of protest is in a democracy. Mm. And, and suddenly a few years ago, those questions became really important again. I mean, they've always been important, but they became really kind of front and center, front page. Um, and I wanted to talk about those issues without mm. writing a contemporary story. And by setting it in the summer of 1970, I get to raise questions that were very important then that, that as the world goes in circles, have become really important again today. Well, the second question I have really relates to what's happening today. Who There are young people, and I know from back then, uh, who were for the war, and there were voices that were against the war. Yeah. And there were people that you know, were conscientious objectives, and there were people that escaped to other places so they wouldn't get drafted. And that's sure. even scarier. And I had a friend that really 
wound up in Vietnam, and he wound up getting stuck with Agent Orange. He really got sick, mm. and it's really sad. So there are young people that are against it, and how do they feel, and how do they let their voices be heard? Because when you listen to the protest today, it's not very organized, and they're very violent, and it's scary. Yeah, I think one of the things I find interesting when I when I kind of compare uh, what things look like more recently and what things looked like um, in 1970, somehow both sides of of the debate, both sides of the protest in 1970, mm-hmm. in today's world, seem almost innocent. Um, and certainly that's not the way any of us felt about it in, in 1970. Uh, this, there really, in 1970, were three major issues that that people were protesting against, and there was obviously an enormous amount of overlap among the three. But the first was was the war itself in Vietnam. Uh, the second was civil rights, and the third were women's rights. Um, and although people sort of gravitated to the, the demonstrations and the protest movement uh, mm. driven perhaps by one of those, uh, they all kind of coalesce um, in, in people's minds and in people's activities. Um, and I try to reflect that in hit or miss. The, the kids that are, that are in the story, I mean, the, the, the main characters, Ben and Emily, are really you're fairly... I don't say average, middle-class suburban college students living at home. Uh, these are not revolutionaries by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but they are disturbed by things that they're seeing. And then the other young people, the other people who are really active um, in the demonstrations and in the, the, the anti-war element of the story, are a group of six young adults that I kind of selectively refer to as the hippies. Um, and they're certainly not all the same, and they don't all have the same issues, um, but they are all kind of representing that that counterculture um, element that was, that was so central to that, that period during late 60s, early 70s. So, well, that's interesting. So here, this is where it gets interesting, interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, who was stopped for the stink bomb? Ah. And tell us about uh, Ben and Emily's relationship. I was like, you know, growing up, I never did that, but I had people that did. It's sad. <laughs> I decided I wanted to, to write some scenes um that gave fingers from 1970 sort of a cameo appearance in the book. Um, and the stink bomb scene is a scene where then Vice President Agnew comes to speak at a VFW post in Ben and Emily's hometown. Um, and, and one of the hippies in the story, uh, a man that we know as Bug, uh, in the story, decides that he's 
gonna he's going to go to the VFW post um, to, in essence, be a witness to his uh, opposition to, to Spiragin. He's not there to demonstrate. He's not there to do anything. He, he just believes that by his presence alone, um, he makes his opposition known and he, he forces the government, if you will, to acknowledge that people exist who don't necessarily agree with what the administration is doing. Uh, during, during the course of Spiro Agnew's speech, and I must say, for those of you who remember Spiro Agnew and the way he spoke, I had great good fun writing his speech for him. Uh, but in the middle of his speech, a stink bomb is set off in the VFW post. Again, the, the stink bomb is not dangerous. It's not destructive. It smells yeah. like rotten eggs. Um, and, of course, that shuts down the speech and the uh, the, mm. the various um, authorities, both the federal authorities who are there for the vice president as well as the local police, jump to the conclusion that Bud must be responsible. And if he, and if he isn't responsible, he undoubtedly will know who is responsible mm-hmm. because he's the county counterculture come to life in, in the audience, if you will. Um, and it kind of sets off an ongoing um, battle between um, the police and Bug and, yeah. and the people in places that, that, that Bug appears in the story that helps to drive some of the other, other plot um, points that kind of I need to unfold during the course of the detective story. It was interesting, though. <laughs> you know, growing up, kids always played stink bombs. Not me, of course. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> I, I think only once, never, I taught for a very long time, and not one of my students would ever think to do something like that, ever, thank God. No, they never did anything wrong, and they were in a tough school. But the other classes did, and <laughs> it's just like, oh, my God. Yeah, instant suspension with a stink bomb, yeah. even, though it was really, even though it was funny. you got to laugh. It was funny. Um, so Detective Miller, I'm not sure about him. He's very judgmental. Why and how does it impact on his relationship with Ben? Uh, I, I think one of the things um, that's maybe a little bit different today than in 1970 is that the the political um, lines that have been drawn um, are are very clearly about kind of political ideology. Um, in 1970, those Differences have also played out generationally. That's where the, the that's when the phrase the generation gap really became um, a central topic, and and all of the um, things that that were going on politically in 1970, any of the arguments about civil rights or women's rights or how the Nixon administration was was um, handling the war in Vietnam, all of those things ended up being argued 
at every dinner table in America. And and if if Dad believed X, then his son believed Y, and it it almost became almost automatic. Um, so that in the same way today, I think sometimes when when people on the left and people mm. on the right argue, they mm. sort of both get pushed to extremes to make their case. In, in 1970, certainly in the Miller household, that was happening generationally. So uh, the detective and his son obviously don't agree politically, but I, but but their beliefs are kind of hardened that they don't agree with each other and neither one wants to ever admit they're wrong. Um, so we know that, that, that Detective Miller loves his son, Ben, and we know Ben loves his father, but, but they're at a point in their lives where they can't talk to each other without it turning into an argument. And, and they mm. both believe it's the other one who's sort of you know, cruising for a fight, who wants to argue. Um, and they just can't quite figure out how to break that cycle of, of father-son arguments, whether they are about a, a political issue or they're about much more personal issues that have to do with whether or not um, the detective likes the choices that his his son is making. So I think it's, it's they're fairly normal parent-child kind of disagreements, but they're occurring in a context that that sort of hardens both of them and and makes it nearly impossible for either of them to give the other the benefit of the doubt. Well, we have this very interesting thing here. Emily's mother is killed, right? And he has to approach the family. But this was really interesting. She stays in Washington. She doesn't go home. How did you create the scene with Breakfast with the President, with Nixon? Well, I thought that, I, that, I, oh, that was priceless. Yeah. I'm sorry. That was priceless. Okay. No, that's great. I think that um, Emily, Emily doesn't, is in Washington, D.C. for the National Student Strike the weekend after the uh, shootings at Kent State University. It was a demonstration that, yeah. that well in excess of 100,000 people attended, many of them, maybe most of them college students uh, who were shutting down college campuses and, and, and demonstrating against the shootings at Kent State. Uh, Emily's in Washington when she learns uh, from a phone call that her mother is dead. Um, normally, we might expect you would jump right on a bus and head home and you get that, that message. Emily's not really ready to process this horror, this tragedy that's occurred at home. And she, in her head, as she says, you know, when I left when I left home, my mother was alive. You know, until I'm home again, I don't have to process that she's not alive mm-hmm. anymore. And, and she she puts off going home for a day. And because she puts off going home for a day, she has this um, un, unexpected 
interaction with President Nixon. Um, this is one of the things that's actually based on fact but takes people by surprise. Uh, mm. As I said, well over 100,000 people descended on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. To, to demonstrate against the Nixon administration. And very early in the morning, before the sun comes up, President Nixon left the White House and walked out on the mall and chatted very amiably with the protesters, uh, wishing them an enjoyable stay in the Capitol, which is really pretty remarkable and, and surprising. And I've had any number of people tell me, you know, that I thought that was implausible until I looked it up and realized that actually mm-hmm. happened. So Emily meets President Nixon on the National Mall before the sun comes up the morning uh, of the demonstration. Uh, what's not historical fact is that it's unlikely that President Nixon actually invited any protesters back to the White House <laughs> for breakfast. Uh, but you know, but as a writer of fiction, sometimes we get to play a little fast and loose um, with, with the facts. Um, so, so as I say, Emily ends up um, having breakfast with President Nixon and arguing with him about the war. I think that's really cool, though. That is really cool. I think the most the most exciting thing that happened to me was when I was. Uh, younger, whatever, yesterday, and mm. went to uh, Fordham Road, and uh, Kennedy was there. Mm. And my, I, yeah, we actually saw him from a thousand feet away. Just waved, <laughs> but yeah. And um, the class I was taking in media later on in college, I got to see got to see uh, the film the film King before it came out. So that was, you know, you never know when you're going to get something yeah. special. Seriously. And it was interesting because I really, when she first meets the president, I had a really difficult time deciding what her reaction would be. Yeah. Um, because Emily's not really politicized. She is just starting on her path of of learning about and and, and becoming more uh, political in terms of the Vietnam War and, and the other kinds of, of of issues that were bringing people out to protest. She's she's at this point a, a very much more moderate young woman. She's a well behaved middle. You know. So I actually wrote a scene where when she first meets uh, President Nixon, she curses. And then, of course, she's embarrassed because she cursed. Um, <laughs> but I just, and I liked, I thought it was fun. I, I enjoyed it just as a moment. But I ultimately decided that I didn't think it was realistic within the world that I was trying to create in the story. So, So instead I have her try to raise her fist in protest only to kind of be embarrassed and, and realizing that it's one thing to do that in a big crowd of people when you're a thousand feet away from anybody that it might be directed at. It's something else entirely to be standing there two feet from the president 
and he's trying mm. to baffle you, and you're trying to act like you're a protester. And, and so she sort of ends up halfway, okay. halfway there and realizes that that's not, that's not who she is, that she can't be quite that um, blunt about it. Well, we have a new kind of a character. We have Duncan, right? Now, yeah. he's, Emily's not on the top of his wife. Who is Karen, and what is her angle? Because she seems to want, she she likes, she has her own thing out with Duncan. Yeah. What's her What's yeah. her thing? And how does you know, Detective so Miller handle questioning Duncan? Okay. So I'm so, not sure so about Duncan, it. Is, is this a standalone? Yes, it is. Well, oh, okay. It was intended as a standalone. It was intended. It was intended as a standalone, and it probably will remain a standalone. Um, I, I, my personal preference as a writer. I, I originally started writing a, a series. I wrote a series that had had three uh, books published, mm. and, and then I decided that I would that I prefer writing standalones. Um, mm-hmm. So so I'm actually considering whether or not, um, and we can talk about this later, whether or not I might want to write um, a second book set in Maine. And, and we can talk about that maybe a little, a little later. But Duncan is Emily's father. Mm-hmm. So he, he, is, he is the husband of the dead woman. Um, and, and like any husband of a dead woman, he's at least potentially a suspect in the murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, most any time that a wife is killed in this country, whether or not the circumstances suggest that the husband may be involved, he, he at least has to be ruled out as, as, as a possible suspect. Um, Duncan is a Ph.D. chemist. He's a little full of himself. Uh, he can be a trifle annoying. Uh, he likes to believe that he knows better than anybody else about anything else. Uh, and, and initially, when Detective Miller first starts to question him, he's really just questioning him to gain information about the, about the circumstances. Um, but, and gradually over the course of the book, Detective Miller comes to decide that, that Duncan is a, is a significant suspect, that it's not just maybe about mm-hmm. ruling out Duncan, yeah. but that he in fact may be more involved in in the crime than at least initially things appear. That may or may not, in fact, turn out to be true, but that's the way it looks to the detective at that point in the story. Uh, the other character that you mentioned that plays into that is Karen. Karen Conaway is Duncan's secretary. Duncan works yeah. for a chemical company where his job is to... Um, research and develop products that the chemical company can translate into commercial um, money makers. Um, And Karen is his secretary. Um, And 
they developed a relationship that he would certainly prefer that people not know about. We don't need to go into the details. Mm. Uh, but but she, she may or may not genuinely care about Duncan. We don't really know. Mm. Um, she may genuinely care about him. She just may be looking at him as... Uh, a successful man in a company where uh, she can kind of work her way up the ladder um, if she's connected to um, an important person at the company. Uh, So she may be using uh, Duncan for her own purposes. She may uh, genuinely have feelings for for Duncan, um, we don't necessarily know that, and we may never necessarily know that. That, that may or may not be kind of a, one of those uh, questions that, that as readers we all come to our own judgments about in terms of what a character's motivations are. Uh, yeah. But 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 because she's his secretary, she also ends up in a variety of ways uh, involved in and, and kind of a party to, and in some cases, sort of a a, a um, snooper into what's happening with the investigation. She has some office tricks that she has learned how to use uh, to know what's going on in, in conversations that she may not be directly party to. Um, and again, we don't necessarily know uh, the extent to which she may or may not be doing that to manipulate, um, whether it's Duncan or the detective or anybody else. Um, but she certainly has a way of, of knowing things that perhaps she's not supposed to know. Yeah, she's pretty sneaky and conniving. <laughs> yeah. This is a character that I did like. Tell us about Tommy Callahan. He's pretty smart. And why yeah, Miller like allowed him to... I like this guy. That's why I said you can bring him back in his own novel. He's good. Yeah. Tell us about yeah. Tommy and why Miller allowed him to tag along when questioning him and why you think he's closer to him than Ben. Okay, those are all great questions. Tommy's an interesting character. Tommy is a, a young man. He's maybe 18, 20 years old, I guess, mm. when, in the, when we meet him in the book. He is the son of a dead hero cop. And like many uh, children of, of officers who've been killed in the line of duty, He's kind of grown up having been adopted, if you will, will by the, by the precinct. Uh, so he hangs out growing up in the station. He helps out in the station doing things like making coffee and running errands to the officers. And as he's getting a little older, he's now um, intending to become a, a policeman and, jo- and join the force of the the rules this, the book is actually set in Nassau County or at least we in Nassau County on Long Island. Uh, the he's passed the police exam, but the the rules in in Nassau County in 1970 they may be the same today. 
require candidates to have completed a certain number of college credits before they can join the force. Mm. Uh, I can't speak to whether or not that's true today. It was true in 1970, and Tommy doesn't yet have the, the college credits to, to be hired as an officer. But, again, mm. they let him hang, and they start to let him do real support tasks, things, again, not necessarily that the police would do, but that civilian employees might do in, 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 the, in the house. And, and one of them, and the one that becomes relevant to this story and to his relationship with Detective Miller, is mm. that uh, he's, he's transcribing notes about another case. Um, and in the course of transcribing those notes, yeah. he, he realizes that that the person that they're, they're following in this other case has said something that at least raises the question that there may be a connection to the case that Detective Miller uh, is investigating. Now, Detective Miller also Detective Miller, as a longtime officer in that in that region, knew Tommy's father. They had been in the academy together. They had grown up in the police force together. There, there were you know, roughly the same age, same background, same same precinct. So, um, Tommy decides that he's going to say something to Detective Miller, uh, share this information with him. Uh, which he realizes he's probably not supposed to be doing. Uh, he doesn't have that kind of authority. He's uh, he's a he's a for all kinds of purposes a volunteer in the police station. He doesn't really have the authority to be divulging uh, information from an investigation. But he feels that he has an obligation uh, to justice um, to, to mention something to Detective Miller. Uh, and that starts them on a relationship uh, where the detective gradually uh, allows him to do more and more uh, to assist him with this case. Mm -hmm. Um, And and it's not that Detective Miller uh, doesn't, again, love his son. It's similar with with Duncan and Emily. Detective Miller, you know, we know loves his son, but we also know, as, we, as I said before, that they're at a point in their life where they can't talk about anything without arguing. So Tommy kind of becomes, if you will, the son that Detective Miller wished he had. He, you know, he wished his son that Ben were more like Tommy, that, that he was more pro-police and more uh, risk, more. Uh, respectful of, mm-hmm. of Detective Miller's uh, you know, beliefs and opinions. Um, you know, Tommy kind of follows the detective along, almost like he's you know, like a little puppy, um, and that you know, that feels good for the detective. Um, but he does. But Tommy, Tommy's an interesting guy, and Tommy's got uh, skills, and and Tommy's going to one day. Uh, be a really good policeman. Um, Detective Miller was a really good policeman, although he's going through some difficult times that are making him maybe less good than he once was. Uh, but but Tommy, Tommy could carry um, his own story, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that 
because that wasn't on my list of projects to play with, <laughs> but it just it just became uh, an item on the list of projects I'm going to play with because he he would be fun uh, to carry his own story. It's I haven't I get in trouble doing that a lot. No, that's great. Thank you. <laughs> I also get in trouble being told that when I read something, nobody else understands it like I do. But then we have somebody to blame for that. I'm serious, which I'm really honored to say that my reading professor, when I went for my second master's, taught me a lot about um, looking deeper in the show. As a matter of fact, he's coming on my radio show. I found him after 100 years. He's coming on my broadcast on the 25th of August. We're going to talk about something that everybody needs to talk about, and I've been promoting it, the the demigalization of education, medicalization of education. And how why so many people are so fast to medicate kids, and we're going to talk about learning disabilities and how you really classify them. And I'm quite um, skilled to do that, which is really oh, great. Yeah. So I was going to get, get a chance to talk to him. So my uh, next question: There are two of them. I'm sorry. Okay. So Duncan is, deals with deforestation, which is the permanent okay. removal of trees to make room for something besides the forest. This is interesting. Right. This include, can include clearing the land for agriculture, grazing, or using the timber for fuel, construction, or manufacturing. What exactly right. does his company do, and what okay. does that have to do with Arnie and Mary that he finds out about? What's his company's goal okay. in, in all that's of this? A, a, those are all great questions. Deforestation, for, the per, for our purposes in hit or miss, is, is very specifically – uh, related to our military activity in Vietnam and Cambodia. The, the, our military wanted and needed and used uh, a chemical agent to kill trees in the jungle, clear the jungle in, in Cambodia and in Vietnam to make it easier to track the movement of Viet Cong. Um, because, as we all know, they didn't fight a traditional military war. And in 1970, we were not yet really, as as a military, well-versed in that kind of of military action. Um, And the Viet Cong were were much more uh, comfortable in the jungle than our troops were, um, and, and and by by killing as much of the vegetation as as we could, it, it it made it easier for our troops and in particular our planes, and helicopters to track uh, Viet Cong movement. Um, actually, okay, historically, um, that's what that's what Agent Orange was, um, and we all now know. Uh, how many uh, health problems um, were caused um, by you know, to, to troops who were who were exposed to it? In any event, um, Hanover Chemical, which is the company that that uh, Duncan is working for, is working on um, a chemical agent that they believe will, would be an effective deforestation um, product. Um, in, that they're hoping to sell to the military, certainly, there, as there is for, for many things um, that may initially have a military um, 
purpose, uh, they expect there'll be, you know, commercial um, benefits long after any particular war is, is over. But their but their goal at the moment is to land a contract with the Pentagon to provide the Pentagon with a deforestation agent that they believe will be better than Agent Orange, which is the phase of what the, what the military was using at the time. Um, and, and Duncan's current assignment at Hanover Chemical is to head up that project. I don't know what it's like. Now, this has really got me. Okay, number one, how does he meet Trixie? Ha uh-huh. <laughs> Trixie. The guy, the guy is, you know, what can I say? <laughs> the, you know, as I say, he, he, he thinks he's I like God's her, gift. Uh, I love Trixie. Um, I, one of the things that I especially like when I'm writing, I, my books, my stories all have kind of large ensemble casts. And I take great pains to to make my kind of minor characters have some real depth to them, to to bring something to the table that, that that so they're not just kind of cardboard cutouts. So that you know, sometimes as authors we spend a lot of time developing our main character, and then they end up interacting with kind of the guy who answers the door or the guy who does this or the guy who does that. And those characters are, are, are because they don't have a large role in the story, never get really developed and, be, and become kind of mm. two-dimensional. And, and, I, and I would find it disconcerting because if my fully developed three-dimensional protagonist is interacting with, with these cardboard cutouts, I, it sort of cheapens for me the whole ability to enjoy the story. So I, so I put a lot of thought into characters like Trixie. Trixie is a waitress in a diner. Uh, Duncan has gone to Karen's home for dinner, and he and Karen have an argument, and she kicks him out of her house. Um and and Duncan again is Duncan, and he doesn't want to just let it go. He wants somehow he's got to have the last word. He's got to make this right. He's got to uh, get back in in the house. So again, in 1970, we don't have the luxury of things like cell phones. Uh, Duncan stops at a diner as he's driving away from. Trixie's in the direction of going home so that he can use the payphone in the diner. And he stops at the mm. counter uh, because he needs change for the payphone. Again, things that, that these days people don't necessarily remember or think about. Uh, so he um, buys a cup of coffee um, and, and asks the waitress for change. Um, and Trixie invites him to get to know her better. Uh, so she, she's just um, a character who, who, who gives me an opportunity, on the one hand, to, to further uh, play with, with Duncan's character and, and, and who he is and, and what his values are, what his weaknesses are, uh, 
and how those things all, all interact. It also gives me a vehicle for, for advancing a few plot points with respect to the murder investigation um, because as circumstances play out, the fact that, that Duncan met Trixie in the diner becomes a piece of information that that moves the uh, investigation forward. Well, let me, before I forget, I don't want to forget, Monday, we have two authors of Condition Black. On the 28th, I'm not really sure I ever got a confirmation for that one yet. On the 4th, one of my favorite people in the universe, Dick Belsky. R.G. Belsky oh. will be here with me. Oh, I love him. Beyond the headlines, oh, my God, Claire Carlson is at it again. On the 6th, Eleanor Kearns. On the 10th, another one of my favorite people, David McCallum. On the on the 12th, we've got um, Jeanette DeBouvier, Dead in the Water. And on the 18th, the person that gave me the uh, blurb for my new book, which is coming out June 26th, Vincent Zandri, will be mm. here with Paradox Lake. I am, like, totally pumped and on it. On the 20th, I've got a panel show. On the 24th, I have another panel show. And on the 26th, something inspirational. Minister Sam Oliver will be here. And we're going to talk about faith and hope and a lot of other things that come to mind, which is really fun. And once in a while, I like doing stuff like that because it means I don't have to read a book. I could just concentrate on something else, which is interesting. And he's interesting, too. So here we go. We have about 15 minutes. This really must have really gotten him. What happens when Ben gets arrested, and how does a father handle when your father son winds up arrested? <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't even want to be around. I, I never got in trouble, and if I if my anybody looked at me cross-eyed, or my mother looked at me cross-eyed, I go, "Yes, Ruthie, you got him out, no problem." Never. So what happens when he gets arrested, and how does he handle it, the father? That's okay. kind of like, oh my God. So again, this is actually based on on historical fact. Um, on August. 1970, which was the 25th anniversary of dropping the bomb on Hiroshima, there yeah. was a very large music festival called the Festival for Peace. It was actually held um, at Shea Stadium, which was in those days the home of the New York Mets. Um, and, and there were 20 or 30 big-name acts who were performing, and we're talking summer of 1970, so we're talking a year after Woodstock. The festival was organized by Peter Yarrow, Peter, Paul, and Mary, and it was, and it was organized specifically to raise funds for uh, anti-war politicians. Anyway, Ben and Emily and their hippie friends want to be there. It's important to them for all mm. sorts of reasons. They want to go to the festival, and they actually purchase tickets. Uh, yeah. But but Ben realizes, or Emily actually realizes, based on on news reports she'd seen that night on the news, that the tickets they had bought from a scalper were counterfeit tickets, and and instead <laughs> they end up sneaking into the festival. And they successfully sneak in. And again, that's actually, I know Shea Stadium fairly well, and there is actually a spot in those days that was was 
very specifically where and how people would sneak into into the stadium. So they successfully sneaked in and they sort of split up and they're hiding until there's enough activity at the festival that they won't be noticed. Um, but there comes a moment where um, three of the of the young women that are there, Emily and two of of her friends. Um, come to the attention of a member of the security detail and Ben realizes that the girls are about to be caught for being there and not having not having valid tickets. And and in Ben's mind it's the moment that happens in in every war movie where the platoon's about to be caught and and one guy in the yeah. platoon does does something to distract the enemy, and he ends up in the movies dead, but his platoon and his buddies are safe and can go on with their mission. Of course, he's not really concerned if he would get killed. The murders were breaking in, but he basically uh, does something that draws the security woman's attention away from the girls and onto him, and he ultimately gets. Uh, a ticket for theft of service, which is a misdemeanor charge that is is the charge that is given to someone who who basically breaks into uh, a paid event and doesn't have a ticket, whether it's a baseball game or a, a, a rock concert or whatever. Um, it's not often that that someone actually gets ticketed, um, but. This was a, a big political festival. It's a year after Woodstock, and the, and the local um, police, as well as the the Shea Stadium administration, want to make sure that they don't have problems. Want to make sure there's no trouble. So uh, kids like Ben, who get caught, who are caught having snuck in, get this misdemeanor uh, charge. It's it's not. Uh, you, mm. you don't get sent to jail, you know, but but you've got to go to court and 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 go through a, a court proceeding, um, and if you're found guilty, typically um, you'll get a small fine, especially if you've got nothing else in your record. Ben has nothing else in his record, um, but the, the, so Ben thinks he's handled it really. Well, when he gets home that night, I mean, he's got a desk appearance ticket, which in his mind is kind of comparable to getting a, a, a traffic ticket. You know, you pay your fine and, and mm. life goes on. Of course, um, his father sees things differently. Um, and it's his father understands that, at least in theory, the consequences could be more severe than just paying a fine, although he doesn't really think they will be. But he certainly thinks it's a good opportunity to, to once and for all kind of put his foot down and force his son kind of back on the straight and narrow. Uh, so he uh, tries to ground them which is difficult to do to a 21-year-old, not impossible. As he says, you yeah. know, you live, in my house, live by my rules. And, and you know, I, I think most of, many of us have had that conversation either as a parent or as a child um, because that's not too uncommon. Um, and then he makes sure 
that that uh, Ben has um, a good attorney who can simply, um, in advance, do, come to a pretrial agreement with the district attorney because these are the kinds of tickets that they just want to dispose of. They don't want to waste mm-hmm. a lot of court time um, on stuff like this. So, you know, typically, um, the attorney and the district attorney are going to agree that you know the kid will plead guilty and, and uh, uh, identify what the fine is going to be, and it's uh, and typically it's a quick pro form appearance in court uh, where you, where the DA tells the judge that they they made come to a plea deal, you know, and and his, his kids going to pay maybe hundred dollars, and judge says okay, and and it takes fifteen minutes and everybody goes back. Um, to their life. Of course, since that wouldn't be enough fun uh, in fiction, it would have to get a little bit more complicated. Oh, well, we have something positive here. <laughs> I don't know who this is, but somebody read my review of your book. Oh, cool. And this is what they said. I'm like impressed. This one definitely sounds like a winner. Thanks for the great review. From Walter Wall Books. Yeah, cool. Well, thank you. That's certainly. I, I, you uh, know, I told you I could post things in it out of nowhere. Everybody just read. I don't know why they just read what I write, but they do. But hey, listen, this better than telling me that I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> it, it, it's great. It's great. I mean, I got a compliment yesterday on Monday from Daniel Palmer about my reviews, and it's like, it makes you feel good. At least I know that I'm doing something that's helping people, and it's fun. That's all. Awesome. It really that's is. Awesome. I mean, I it's fun. I mean, I probably went into a store to go shopping the other day, but my husband's very glad that I do this because he keeps me out of the stores to go shopping. <laughs> so there, there's another death. Hmm. First of all, yeah. I understand why that why Ben's father would get upset because he was going to college, and you don't know how that's going to tie in to ruin your yeah. education and your career. Yeah. Now, I just my mother just had a look at me. I didn't even have to worry about it. When there's another death, how does Miller realize what really happened to Rosalie? Okay. I sort of, I sort of had a feeling, but I'm not going to say. But um, yeah, well, there's another death. So how does he come up with? How does he realize it? How does he tie it all in? Okay. Right. Uh, as he's been pursuing the case, uh, yeah, he, he, he comes to the opinion that although uh, Emily's father may be involved in the case, mm-hmm. in murder, that he may not be and probably is, he's not so much the person who killed yeah. his wife so much as he's the person who engineered that to happen. So, so yeah. um, the detective is, is really hunting at this point for the person he thinks may actually uh, have, have committed the murder. Uh, and and his, his leads on that actually start from the, from the information that he, he had gotten from Tommy Callahan, that Tommy Callahan had picked up in, in mm. doing some of the clerical work on, on this other case. Well, that gradually leads the detective on, on a chain of events that, that ultimately um, lead to 
uh, a small town on the main coast that, uh, again, it's based on the real town, but fictionally uh, in, in the book, it's Great Water Maine. And it's a small uh, seafaring town. It's, its history is primarily um, fishermen, lobstermen, uh, you know, people who, are, who, who earn their living um, on boats and, and, and from the sea. Um, and uh, in the course of following his, 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 his leads and his clues, the detective eventually um, has reached out to the police department in, uh, in Breakwater in the hopes that they may be able to, to help him uh, solve the crime. As he says to Officer Hilliard in Breakwater, you know, that um, if he's able to provide him some information, that Officer Hilliard in this little town in Maine, you know, may help to crack a big murder case in New York. And Officer Hilliard is all into that because, as he tells Detective Miller, all he really does in Breakwater, you know, is break up occasional bar fights between lobstermen. Um, and that it would be kind of neat to be able to help solve a, a big New York murder crime, murder case. Um, mm. But he, but proof he doesn't have any information, and he's unable, at least initially, uh, to be of any assistance until, as you say, there's a dead body turns up in, in Breakwater, Maine. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't turn up in the sense of there's nothing mysterious. This is an old woman. Uh, who everyone expects to die and has actual and is living in a hospice and, and is hanging on frankly longer than than anyone would have expected. Uh, and so when she dies, there's nothing unusual about that. There's nothing out of the ordinary. It doesn't raise any concerns. Uh, but as um Officer Hilliard says, you know, even in the most benign of circumstances, mm. when a woman dies in this modern age of 1970, there's paperwork that has to be filed. There's, you know, there's T's have to be crossed and I's have to be dotted. And in the course of, of doing that, he notices something that reminds him of the contact that Detective Miller had made sometime earlier, and he contacts Detective Miller and says, "This may, you know, I don't know what this means. It may or may not mean anything, but I think the guy that you're looking for mm. is in Breakwater, Maine. Um, so, so it's not that that second dead body. It's a very just normal elderly." woman with serious medical concerns living in a hospice waiting to die in essence um, there's nothing untoward about it um, but it raises um, a question that, that ties again back to the case that, that Detective Miller is, has been pursuing all that summer um, and he makes a trip to Breakwater um, in the hopes that he's going to be able to uh, put the pieces together and and have it actually lead to the killer. 
Well, before we end, I need about three minutes left. What is next for you, and where can we learn more about you? And all I'm going to say about the ending, the last chapter was priceless. That's it. That's I will not say more. About Thank you. I, I, I like the way the story ended. Um, I, I, <laughs> so since since um, Hit came out in December, my focus has been on short fiction, and I have three short short stories and a novella coming out later this year. Um, the first one up is I have a short story uh, called Shades of Death that will be in this year's Malice Domestic Anthology, which normally would have been out in another week or so, but but Malice has now been pushed back to July, so I assume the anthology uh, will also be pushed back until July. Uh, I then have a short story uh, called The Black and White Cookie in Jewish Noir 2, uh, Jewish Noir, the first edition, uh, edited by Ken Rishney and, and from PM Press, was really well received, and I'm real pleased that they accepted a story of mine for volume two. Uh, I also just sold a story called The Third Date Rule to an anthology, Asinine Assassins, that should be coming out toward the end of the year. The Third Date Rule is the story of an 80-year-old hitman who comes out of retirement for one final job. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a novella uh, that will be out in probably October. Um, the working title is The Search, and it's a meta-mystery. It's really um, a, a a story within a story that kind of blurs uh, the lines between between fiction and reality. Uh, actually, the author of the novella has a cameo in the novella. Uh, so, so that, that's that one is really directed to folks who really enjoy metafiction. And for people well, who want to just know more about where to find me. The easiest place to start is my website, which is jeffmarkrich.com. And me, I'm going to, my book is coming out June 26th, and I'm getting 50 copies of it, even if I don't want them, (laughs) on Friday. It's called Population Zero. It's called, it should have been, it was supposed to be Population Zero, World Without People, because I created Worlds Without People. It's Population Zero, Stories About the End of the World. It's not very long. It's 76 pages, and I've been told it's equivalent to the Twilight Zone, and it's scary. It's to try to wake up people. It's different. I don't write normal stuff. I I would be bored writing with different stuff. But before I end the show, like I end every other show, because this pandemic has really gotten to me, um, just one small ask. When you go outside, please be safe and wear a mask and be careful. And everybody... Stay safe, Jeff. Thank you so much. This has been enlightening. I'll tell you that. And when you get your, are you going to do another uh, tour with Cheryl and Partners in Crime? They always ask me to ask that. I'm sure I will at some point. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, what I'm going to do with the novella? That's a little bit different. Uh, yeah. I'm not quite ready to talk about that one yet. Um, but but um, certainly not for the short stories. Um, but maybe when the novella. Uh, comes out. I'll have to. I very well might. Yeah, I'm um, going to do one with them. I'm going to do one for this one because they they make me look so much better than I am. <laughs> anyway, everybody, it's beautiful outside. Have a great day, Jeff. Stay safe, everyone, and bye. Good.
saying thank you. Bye-bye.